Turn with me now in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And our reading this morning is going to be verses 7 through 13 as we hear our Lord Christ address a letter to the church at Philadelphia. Would you stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and an errant word of the living God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have just a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. We ask now for help to understand. So we sing Psalm 119, Selection B. 119, Selection B. We'll sing the first and the last stanza as we cry out to God for help to understand his holy word. How can a young man cleanse his way? Let him with care your word obey. With all my heart I seek for you. From your commands let me not stray. I questions we've been trying to ask as we've been working our way through these uh, seven letters of Christ uh, to the seven congregations here in the in the book of Revelation is how does the exhortation which Christ shapes for each particular church 
match the situation where they are from? How does the exhortation given match the situation and place where they are from? So as we take that question and apply it to our text this morning, we might ask ourselves as we work our way into Christ's letter here to Philadelphia, what was the city of Philadelphia like? And I think it's fair to begin with its name. The city literally means the city of brotherly love. But you know, that wasn't always its name. In fact, it was given several names. It was called the not-so-catchy Neo-Caesarea. On account of one of the Caesars who had tried to help the city rebuild after a, a very powerful earthquake, which basically leveled the entire city. Later, it was called Flavia, uh, after the Emperor Vespasian. It's had a couple other names, but, but the interesting, the name that stuck is Philadelphia, and the city uh, name comes from an old king named Attalus, who um, was given the name Brother Lover, because of the intense bond that he shared with his own brother and his extreme loyalty to him. And that may just have been the street name of the city for some time, but the fact of the matter is people of that city found their identity in this concept of a city of brotherly love. It was a false love, it was a non-Christian love, but nonetheless, that's part of the identity of this town. The other thing that is part of the identity of the town is its wealth. It was located at the corners of two of the most important trade routes in antiquity. Because of that, it turned out it was pretty good for the economic situation. It was a city of great material prosperity. Even the archaeological digs of this day show that there must have been a profound and a substantial amount of wealth in order to have constructed these massive building projects. So it was a city full of materialism and external splendor and money. And because of that, there's another feature of this town, and that is its missionary zeal. The city of Philadelphia had a missionary zeal and that missionary zeal was, we could say, connected to its material prosperity. For one of the reasons this city was built was so that it would be a monument and a testimony to Greek culture. The city of Philadelphia was planted, you could say, and built, you could say, for a purpose, a missionary purpose, to spread to uh, this uh, locale in the Roman Empire that if they would adopt the ideals of Hellenism, it would go well for them. And so, you know, this city had this reputation for its, its Greekness. And, and, you know, if you know anything about the Greeks, they, they thought there was two truths in life. There's uh, people who are Greek and everybody else who wishes they were Greek. They thought their culture was vastly superior. They were a literate people, a philosophical people, an artistic people, an architectural people. 
um, a people who uh, knew how to throw on uh, magnificent plays and could build uh, monuments and fight wars. And so there was a snobbishness about being Greek, but there was a missionary zeal about it as well, which was this desire to captivate others with the ideals of Greece in order to make them uh, devoted to it. That is where the situation of Philadelphia intersects with now Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia. You see, basically the message of the church of Philadelphia is that the church is there on Christ's own authority in order that it may be a countercultural force. It might be a countercultural force against the zealot missionaries of cultural Hellenism. And the task given to this church is to counteract that by converting the city of Christ and transforming its culture into that of Christ and the word of God. And one reason why we know that's true is two of the ways here that Christ speaks about himself. In verse 7, you will notice he identifies himself as the one who holds the key of David. And then as you look at verse 8, you will notice Christ's intervention. He says to the church, I have set a door before you, which when I open, no one can shut except for me, who is the one who opens it. And by the way, these are unique features to the letters. You don't find these, this testimony about Christ. Uh, and his identity or his activity in the other letters. So that tells us something about the force of the message here, the shaping of the message, the intention of the message is that Christ has placed this church here to be a countercultural force through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the main point of the text. And that's what we want to examine this morning is that Christ uses faithful churches. Christ uses faithful churches to be a countercultural force which subdues unbelievers through the gospel. You know what the church is here for? Jesus Christ says it's right here. This is why the church is here. To light up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To turn the hearts of people which have been subdued by sin to false gods and gross materialism unto the Savior Jesus Christ that they may have eternal life in so we're going to think about that in a few different ways. Faithfulness, countercultural force, and promises. And the first thing I want us to notice here is faithfulness. You see, what we're seeing here is the testimony to the nature of the church which Christ uses to be a countercultural force. That's what this is about, first of all, as we come into verse 8. It is Christ's own testimony of the nature of the church that Christ uses to be a countercultural force. And there's two parts of this testimony. The first is, kept my words kept my words. Look at uh, the latter part of verse 8. This is where we get to the commendation of Christ of the church in Philadelphia. And people have noticed it's kind of scant. It's not like the other ones. But I think if you look at it, it sums up just about everything you could say about a church. And the first thing that Jesus says that is commendable is you have kept my word. This is the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. One who has been trained in all which Christ has commanded and keeps what Christ has commanded. I cannot imagine a greater commendation 
to receive from Jesus Christ than for him to say, you have kept my word. And we think about the word of Jesus Christ. We, we know what it means. This is a reference to the scriptures. This is to the law and the gospel. This is to the Old and the New Testament. This is to, to the totality of the word of God. This is to say of them that they took Christ's law as their law and they put themselves in the position of being subjects and servants to Christ as Lord and King. And what that implies is a genuine conversion of Christ because in other words, what they're saying by calling Christ Lord is they're saying of him, he is the one who has redeemed and purchased them body and soul from sin and from all of the power of the devil to be his own. That's the only person who can say this. You can't fake this confession. Because if you are, your heart will betray you. Your heart will betray you. There are some people who, who try to live a good line when they know it's a lie. But Jesus Christ can see straight through that and he will expose that kind of vain hypocrisy. But what Jesus does is looks into their heart and he understands there is a true confession under here, and we'll see that just in a moment. But I'm trying to give us a sense of how they're posturing themselves. When he says of them, you've kept my word, they are saying to Christ, we are your subjects because you own us by grace. I got to thinking about that, and I remembered this verse. It's John 14, 23. It's what Jesus spoke to his disciples in the night in which he was betrayed. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus says love for Christ is expressed in obedience to his word. And so here, as he says this to the church of Philadelphia, they have kept his word. It's another way for Jesus Christ to say to them, you must love me. And we know that's true because of what Jesus goes on to say in John 14, 24. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Disobedience to Christ indicates no true love for Christ. And so what we have here is Jesus setting forth how he measures all of us. This is how Jesus measures every single person who claims to be a disciple. He says, do you love me? See that? This is how he measures whether we are true and genuine and sincere disciples. He says to us, do you love me? Remember how he put those words so agonizingly to Peter after he, after he betrayed him? He came to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? And what did Peter say? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. He said to him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. You see, Jesus is making it very clear the authentication of our confession to be the subjects of Christ is we show it by our love, and the love is expressed in our obedience. And so Jesus commends the church of Philadelphia. He says, I am staring at you. I'm piercing 
with the blazing red hot eyes of holiness, I see into the depths of your heart, and here's what I see. You love me. And I know that because you seek to keep my commandments. What would Jesus say to us this morning? What would Jesus say to you if he was writing the letter to you this morning and to this congregation? Would Jesus look down and say, I know you love me because you keep my word. And I know somebody's quick to say, but pastor, I can't keep all of Christ's word. I think he knows that. I'm pretty sure he knew the Philadelphians weren't either. But what do you long to do? That's not a bad question. What do you long to do? What is your desire? When you find yourself under that inescapable influence of the Spirit of God, what is it that you long to do? Remember how the Apostle Paul put it? He says, that which I want to do. It was a longing. Yeah, he couldn't fulfill it. He's so candidly transparent about it. But he says, this is what I long for. That's what Christ is saying here. And he counts it as having kept his word. This was a faithful congregation. A people who were committed to Christ. Notice what else he says of them. This is all part of the kind of the nature of the church that Christ uses to be a countercultural force. He says, you have not denied me. Now, this is where we get into the idea there's a real profession of faith involved, that, that, is, that uh, this obedience is suspended upon and flows out of. He says, you haven't denied my name. And deny means to renounce and disassociate. Think of cancel culture, right? The minute anybody is associated with an off-color comment or something that could have happened in their past 27 years ago, what does everybody do? But they circle the wagons and they kick them out of... Uh, of the accepted safe space, and, and they are they are canceled. They are renounced. Jesus Christ says here to the church, "You have not renounced me." And he says, "My name," and that's what's so critical because when we hear the language of "my name," our minds immediately go to Acts chapter four, verse twelve, where where Peter and John are preaching before the Sanhedrin. And there Peter says that, that the name of Christ is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So to not deny the name of Christ is to own the name of Christ, to, to publicly express allegiance to Christ. <coughs> Put it in their context now. Remember, the city of Philadelphia, the city of false brotherly love, was a city that was sold out with missionary zeal for promotion of Hellenism and Greek culture. You see, they had something they used to love. And it was manifested in their works of commitment to the gospel of Hellenism. And then one day they were saved by that same gospel of Jesus Christ. They became converts from Hellenism, the converts to Christ through the preaching of the word. They didn't deny his name after that. And as we're going to see in a moment, 
that lack of denial came at a, at a cost. Certainly from the Greeks, but also from the synagogue here, as Jesus speaks of those who were oppressive towards them, they were the, the falsely so-called Jews of the Jewish synagogue, which Jesus says himself is a synagogue of Satan. They were oppressed for their faith and their commitment to Christ, but they didn't lag and they didn't turn away and they weren't ashamed and they weren't embarrassed and they didn't back down and they didn't cave to social pressure. They held their profession of faith in Christ. That's the kind of church that Jesus would use to be a countercultural church. So I got to thinking about that. How, how do we deal with this? How do we bring it into our world here this morning? Because I think it's so important that we stick this deep in our minds. I'm going to try to develop it just a bit more because I think it's so central to the heartbeat of our text here. But, but what is the nature of the kind of church that Jesus Christ uses to be a countercultural force through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, and Christ lays it out here. He says, this is what I bless. I bless faithfulness. Faithfulness to my word and faithfulness to publicly professing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so to help bring it into our situation and the culture and the place and the uh, place we are situated today, we can ask, well, well, what kind of Christian would the world like you to be? Because once we understand that, we'll learn to understand how we're not to be. But, But what kind of Christian would the world like you to be? And the answer seems to me to be boiled down into two very simple things. Irreverent towards the word of God, compromising towards Christ. Irreverent towards the word of God and compromising toward Jesus Christ. You know what the world scorns and ridicules and holds in contempt is Christians who adhere to an old book. They think it's fanatical that you would regard 3,000-year-old texts or more as God's inspired and authoritative and inerrant word. That's what they think. They think that's abnormal psychology. That you would sit down and say, I'm reading the word of God. They don't care if you read the Bible for inspiration They don't care if you consult it as a religious book. They don't care if you get your rituals from the Bible. But the one thing they have contempt for is somebody who sits down to read the Bible and says, this is the word of God, 16 ounces to the pound. They say of you, you have a screw loose. Do you know what else they don't like? is they don't like people who really trust in Jesus exclusively as Lord and Savior. The world is just fine with you believing in Christ as long as you're willing to compromise towards Christ. By the way, I got to think about this. I said this is old as Christianity, isn't it? Because the Apostle Paul complained about this when he was writing to the Corinthians. He says, to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, they say it's foolish. You know what that word foolishness? It means moronic. 
That's what the world thinks of you, but even worse, because it thinks that if you would believe in a Savior who, who paid for you with precious blood to save you from the wrath of God, that you would have eternal life, well, to them, they would say, that's just not even sanity, but it's dangerous. I just recently sat talking with some lady who's suffering like you can't even imagine. And I was trying to talk about the hope of the gospel. And she said to me, I'm fine with the God stuff. Literally, that's what she said. I'm fine with the God stuff. But don't tell me about this blood. I, I, I can't stomach it. Oh, they're happy to hear from a Christian who believes that be loving them some Jesus. That's fine. But when you bring that down to brass tacks and say what it means to believe in Jesus is not that you think he was a good guy or exemplary in his conduct. What it means is he shed his blood bearing your flesh to appease the wrath of an almighty God. To them, that's crazy. What does the world want you to be today? To be the right kind of Christian? Inclusive. Tolerant. Respectful to other faith traditions. And just fine with anybody's grossly immoral practices as long as they're not bothering anybody else with it. Don't sit in judgment of what somebody else is doing. They're not hurting anybody. But Jesus doesn't think that way. The way we become a countercultural force for Christ, right where we are, is we listen to what he says to Philadelphia. And what does he commend? He commends that we keep his word. And we demand that that is the acid test and the foundation and measure of all truth. And that we believe in his blood. That he was shed for our sin. And we have to hold that without compromise. And so my encouragement to you this morning, people of God, and I know you're already tracking with me on this because you believe it, but it never hurts to hear it and spoken in your ears again and again and again. Don't let yourself get bullied into taming down and slicing off the rough corners and edges of your faith by being a little irreverent to the works. I know 3,000-year-old texts can't be perfect. They're not meant to be scientific. I know it's really important that I believe in Jesus, but I know some people I've met just have a really sincere faith, and i got to go with that too. If you do that to take the heat off from a scowling world, there's one thing that they will always think of you, that you're pathetic. That you are pathetic. They'll work you till you're exhausted to make you think that you'll be accepted if you... If you tone down your faith, but the minute they do, they will look at you as pathetic and a sellout to Christ. So what do we do if we want to be a countercultural congregation? Faithful. Double down on all of it. <laughs> I mean it. You double down on all of it. That this book is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant, an authoritative and sufficient word of the Almighty God. 
and that his Christ is absolutely the only way to salvation through a bloody cross. Faithfulness. Let's think about countercultural. What does that mean? And that idea of being counterculture is, uh, is expressed and reflected in what he says to the church now about these menacing Jews, these self-professing Jews in verse 9. Notice here uh, that our text says that they go out of the way to make it clear that they are Jews. It says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews. And in the original, a reflexive pronoun is used, which means that Jesus says, this is what they say about themselves. In other words, he is taking a bright highlighter and, and, just, and just, just scrubbing it across their own words. It's their claim. And Jesus says, and here's my assessment. The very first words out of his mouth after their assessment of their own faith, what does he say here? They're liars. That's uh, pretty cold, isn't it? That's some straight talk express. They're liars. They're not who they say they are. And then Jesus brings the hammer. He says, here's what they really are. They are the synagogue of Satan. Okay, so we saw this before in Revelation 2.9. And we talked about it there. I've had more time to ruminate upon it and think about it. And, and here's what I began to think about is, is I thought, what does Jesus mean by this? And I said, I think John 8 gives the answer. So flip over there with me because I think this is a window into this text. The more I think about it, by the way, this is Jesus' own words in both spots. So I think we're in pretty good place to say this is all right, okay? So the, the key jumping off point to this idea is uh, in verse uh, 38, where he says, Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, he's just been speaking about his father, which is God, and he speaks of your father. And they don't know yet who Jesus says their father is. It's the devil. Look at verse 44. They don't know that yet, but I want you to notice who they claim is their father. Their immediate response to Jesus Christ in verse 39 is, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. See that? Abraham is our father. You know what Jesus does? He immediately takes a whack at it. And he said, if you're Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. Remember what we just said about John 14, 23? Jesus said, I'll tell you who is my disciple. You love me, you keep my commandments. If you don't, you don't love me. He's using the same logic here, isn't he? If you are children of Abraham, your works will look like Abraham's works. And he says, I have to say, when I look at you, I don't see the family resemblance. You know, you... You have pictures on the wall at your house, right? You look at your family and you go, wow, they all look different, but we're the same, you know? Somebody's got the same chin or the same eyes or the same cheekbones, and you can start seeing the family resemblance as you take a look at all those pictures on the wall. Jesus says, when I look at Abraham and the Word of God and I look at you, I see two different families. 
Because he says, here's what Abraham did. He obeyed God's commandments in verse 56. He said, he looked to my day, rejoiced in it, and was glad. And what are you doing? You're trying to kill me. He said, who does that make you? Hmm. Verse 44. You're the, your father the devil. You want the desires of your father who was a murderer. And whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. What does the devil look like? A murderer and a liar. And that's the truth. Their spiritual DNA was not of Abraham. It was of Satan. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what Jesus is saying here as uh, he directs his ire and his wrath towards this synagogue of Satan. These people said they are of Satan because that preposition of means either owned by or they are from family relationship. And so we know what Jesus means when he uses this language. When he speaks of these Jews, he's not speaking of them like when you read in Acts 5.13 that many Jews were being converted and, and the Jews who were not looked at them and they said they admired them. That's not the same. They, these are hostile. They are enemies. They are deceivers. They are liars. They are oppressors. They are haters. And so this is what the church at Philadelphia was up against. They were not only up against the missionaries of Hellenistic culture, but they were up against the missionaries of the wicked one. They were of the devil. And so now I want to see um, the heart of our passage here is the gospel force. See, there to be a countercultural force, and I want you to see the force now as you come into verse 8. Because Jesus says here, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word, denied my name. That language of the open door is what got me into really getting to the heart of this text, which is about the counterculture through the gospel. Because when you look at that word open door in the New Testament, it always refers to missionary zeal and success. Acts 14, 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with him, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This was Paul and Barnabas at the end of their first missionary journey when they returned to Antioch, the congregation that commissioned them on this journey, and they told him this is the essence of what God had done. He had opened the door. We preached those sections. We saw place after place after place where Paul went and preached the gospel and masses of people were coming to Christ. Open door. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. I remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me. Acts 19. He was preaching in the synagogue. He preached in the school of trans for the space of three years. And what was happening? There was a massive cultural revolution taking place. It was so great that Alexander the silversmith rounded up the union trade members and started a revolt in City Hall because there were so many conversions to Christ that their business had dried up. That's countercultural force. So many people were being converted to Christ and smashing their idols that the idolatry business had lost all of its equity and capital and money. That's countercultural. That's the open door. Colossians 4, 3, the apostle commands the church, praying at the same time for us as well, God will open us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So the open door concept in the New Testament 
is Jesus Christ as the sovereign king of his church commissioning them to missionary activity through the preaching of the word of God and him taking that door and opening it up for opportunity and not just opportunity, but opening the hearts of people to respond sovereignly. It's an evangelistic situation. That's what he's saying. I have put before you an open door. You see, this is Jesus' words that are specific to the situation of Philadelphia, which was noted and characterized for its missionary zeal for Hellenism in the midst of a bunch of zealous missionaries for a false god and a false religion. Jesus Christ says, here's your call. I open the door. Now get to work. Take up the gospel. Proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the moral claims of Christ. That's it. Proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the moral claims of Jesus Christ. And notice what will happen when the church does this now. Verse 9. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say... They are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. See, this is what's remarkable about our passage. We just said that these are people who, who um, have the spiritual DNA of the demonic, of Satan in them. And Jesus says, the door I am placing before you will be so effectual and so powerful. And I will so sovereignly exercise my force that I will take the key of the kingdom of heaven and unlock their hearts to make them responsive to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are going to come in and bow down at your feet. That is an image of gospel conversion. That's what Hendrickson says. This is about the conquest of Christ through the gospel. He will vanquish them through the gospel and spiritual conversion. And the result is they will know that Christ loves the church. And why will they know Christ loves the church? Because they're in it. They will know something, a love that they never had. They will know that Jesus Christ loves them because they were subdued to him by the gospel. So people of God, this is the countercultural force is that we respond to Christ's promise that if we seek an open door through prayer, he opens it. And he makes it effectual. And what kind of a church does he do that for? A faithful church. You say, what does a faithful church look like? And I say, look at verse 8. He says, uh, immediately after telling them, he's put an open door in front of them. No one can shut. He says, because you have little power. <laughs> By saying they have little power, he's not commending them for the little teeny, teeny shred of power they have. We got that, right? By saying you have little power, he's saying you have no power. You have no power except for your devotion to Christ. You have no power. And that's what's so important about this. The power or the opportunity is not tied to the numbers and the size of the congregation or to its influence within the community. He says, you have no power. You only have friends in low places. You don't have a cadre of armed soldiers ready to back you up when you step out and seek to plant the flag for Jesus Christ. 
You don't have any money in your pockets. You can't, uh, you can't scrounge change together. You got nothing. You don't even know important people. What do they do have? They have faithfulness to Christ and love for Christ. And that's what matters. And that's why Jesus exhorts them to keep persevering. In verse 11, he says, keep holding fast. The continuation of the faithfulness. People of God, we look around us and it's distressing to see a culture that is literally being vaporized before our eyes. And the pace of it is astonishing. It causes your head to spin and boggles the mind. How can something reduce to rubble and ashes so fast? I, I was watching some of the stuff yesterday commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I visited some lady yesterday. I was trying to bring her some peace of Christ. She said, what's there to be peaceful about? This is a horrible day. <laughs> and I said, well, I know that. God is with you. You have faith, right? Oh, yeah. But she said, everything's crumbled. This isn't the same world. She was in her late 80s. She said, this isn't the same world. And then I looked at TV and everybody's saying, it's not the same world that it was 20 years ago. We are so divided over everything. And I say, yeah, that's just an index of the fact that we have rot at the foundation of our entire culture. We thought we could be a good secular people. That's what the foundation of this country is. A good secular people without Jesus Christ. Well, the chickens are coming home to roost. You cannot be a good secular culture and maintain it. Eventually, it will head where it is now, which is to, well, gross immorality in the highest places, usurping the role of Jesus Christ and the church, becoming the Lord of your conscience. I can't think of a more serpentine grab for power than that. Why? Because Christ is not in it. What is the answer for us? I, I know my heart's disturbed and I've seen some of what you said. Your hearts are disturbed. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are we going to do? Is the answer for us to complain and just say, oh man, the sky is falling. No, Jesus Christ says it's right here. I have the key of David. Look at how he describes himself in verse 7. I have the key of David. When Jesus talks about opening the door which no man can shut, this is how that door gets open. He says, I have the key of of David, We call this the power of the keys of the kingdom. We talk about the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. And there's two ways that Jesus Christ uh, exercises the keys of the kingdom. It's through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline. You learned that on your mama's knee when you were learning catechism from her. The preaching of the word of God and the exercise of Christian discipline. Christ has the key and he says... I, uh, you, church, exercise it through me and the means I have appointed. 
How are we going to be anything? How are we going to respond? Well, Christ says, here's your response. You become the counter-cultural force against wickedness in high places and secularism, which has become entrenched in the culture that is godless and immoral. Here's the key. The preaching of the Holy Gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline with the faith to know that when we commit ourselves to the means and the key, it will be powerful because Christ owns the key. I know that it's hard to look at all this. We see a world steeped in darkness, chained by demonic bonds, people, mass multitudes believing delusions, literally delusions. They're delusions. You say, what good can a Christian be? Are we just sour grapes invited to the party or is there something else for us? Well, here's the answer right here. To acknowledge we have little power. I know it's horrible to say that, but it's the truth. We have little power. But that's fine because Christ is almighty. Commit ourselves to what Christ calls us to be the countercultural force that seizes the opportunity of the open door and through the gospel of Christ seeks to win the lost unto him. There isn't another way. There is not another way. We cannot teach people good manners and learn how to be nice and work our way out of this. We cannot teach them the right political philosophy so that they vote correctly as we would like and get out of this. The only thing we can do is bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust that he will exercise it as it is, a sharp sword. The minute we doubt that Jesus Christ can and will do this, is the minute we need to run to Revelation chapter 19 and notice that Christ rides forth to conquer and to build his kingdom on a battle horse with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And he says, I will tread underneath the fierce winepress of the wrath of God. He will be victorious. The question for us is, we follow him. Will we submit to him? Will we accept his means? The last thing I'd have us look at in our time is just very short now. It's promise. Here's the motivation to work it all out. And there's a succession of three promises given here. And I'll just note them quickly in verse 10. After Jesus makes very clear what the response is, he says, because you've kept my word of uh, perseverance, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing. There's a lot of ink spilled over what the hour of testing is. Some people say, well, it's the, it's the tribulation, don't you know? Other people say, oh, no, this is what happens before Christ comes again at the end of the age, before the second coming at the end of the age. And I say, there's nothing in the text that makes me think any of that's true. Anytime the church seeks to be the church, what happens? The hour of tribulation comes. The world loves where the church is right now. Hiding. Worrying about getting caught because we're worshiping 
not following certain mandates, whatever. The world loves the church being like this. What happens when the church is bold and becomes a church? Jesus says, when you stand up and you do the right thing, I'm going to keep you in the hour of testing. That's a promise. The other promise here that we seize upon is um, the promise to be a pillar. He says, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of God. He says, you want a place uh, that is secure and unshakable, unmovable? I've got it for you. It's like a pillar in the temple of God. This speaks of security and being established in such a way it can never be removed. It's like we read in our law reading this morning. Which treasures are you looking for and searching for and living your life for? The kind that moths eat and thieves steal? Are you looking for a pillar in the house of God? And then you have finally the promise of a new name. It's really three names, isn't it? Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from um, heaven from my God. And three, my new name. Notice there are three names that are promised to the believer. They will receive God's name, new Jerusalem is their citizenship, and the new name of the Lord. It would take, uh, I don't know how much time to unravel each of those. I really don't think the point is to do that. I think the point is to, to grasp a sense of the whole. All of this is about the fullness of Christ's grace, which you already participated and you will receive in consummation fullness. And you have every right to believe in it based upon the person who writes the name that's Jesus Christ. He says, I will write on him the name. And the person that speaks the promise is the one who identifies himself in the letter to the church to Philadelphia. He who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the key of David. How do we do this? Well, we acknowledge the power is not in us. You can't change anything. That's the hardest part to be in our position right now. You can't change anything. But that's what Christ says. You have little power. He's not saying you have a little power. No, what we do is we identify with what Christ would have us to be, the countercultural force through the gospel applying ourselves to faithfulness and devotion to Christ and as we do that we fuel our energy for this calling by applying the promises to ourselves I will keep you I will make you a pillar I will give you the greatest of names and if we do that Empowered by Christ's grace. We can be sure we'll be the countercultural force through the gospel that Christ is calling us to be. In, the, in our midst, our little corner here, the word of God will run sweet.
Father, we thank